Um, my name is Kevin Nahai. I am a public speaker and a personal coach. I'm 29. I'm Persian Jewish, born and raised in LA. And if I may, I would just like to start by doing a little exercise. So what I'm going to do in a second is I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes. It won't be like a weird closing your eyes, like opening up your chakras and, you know, we're not going to do that thing that everyone does, which is like, let's take a deep breath and connect. You know, it's not going to be a woo-woo closing your eyes. Um, so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and then I'm going to say a series of statements. And if the statement applies to you, I will ask you to stand up and remain standing with your eyes closed. Okay? So eyes closed, everyone. You too. Thank you. Okay. If you have ever been through a very difficult breakup, please stand up. Keep your eyes closed when you stand. If you have ever been fired from a job or lost your job, please stand up. No, please stay standing. Everybody, if something applies to you, stay standing. Okay, if you have ever, God forbid, lost someone you truly loved, a grandparent, a friend, a pet, a cousin. If you have ever dealt with any sort of clinical disorder, anxiety, depression, bipolar, anything, please stand up. Now, I'd like you all to remain standing and open your eyes and look around. Is anyone sitting? You may have a seat. Adversity is around us all day long at every stage of our lives. And the key to overcoming adversity is developing resilience. The textbook definition of resilience is the ability of a material to go back to its original shape after it's been bent or after it's been broken or after it's been played around with, can go back to what it was. And if we can all develop resilience, which is my goal to be able to share with you tonight, then the challenges that we overcome, the challenges that we face in our lives become much, much easier to overcome as we navigate them. The bad news is that we're never going to stop having challenges. As long as we are alive, we will have difficulty in our lives. The good news is that the difficulty of the challenges in our lives is not measured by the challenge or the adversity or the event itself. The difficulty of the challenges in our lives is measured by our ability to respond to it, our ability to deal with it, and how effectively and how peacefully and with how much serenity we can take that challenge in stride. As I said earlier, the bad news is that Every single time you overcome a challenge, you are going to have to level up and God is going to give you a challenge of equal or greater difficulty. But the good news is that every single time you level up, you are now able to handle that challenge more gracefully and with more serenity and with more peace. So this is why some people go through a terrible breakup and they're completely fine. And they're like, you know what, I can't wait to get back out in the dating market. And I'm so lucky that this happened and I feel grateful. And other people go through a breakup and it completely crumbles. They, they completely crumble and it crushes them. That person who's being crushed by that breakup, either they haven't had as many challenges or this is the biggest challenge in their life to date. So they don't have the experience of building resiliency. Resilience really is a muscle. I was not always a resilient piece person. 
Now, by the grace of God, I consider myself an incredibly resilient person, but I was not always. When I was 18, I was a very happy-go-lucky senior in high school. I was elected to give my graduation speech at my high school, and here I am 10 years later giving speeches. So I thought I peaked in high school, but I guess I'm doing okay. Um, And everything in my life was going great. I got into USC. I was going to study there in the fall, and I was really excited. Um, and I was on sports teams, and you know I had a couple girlfriends in high school, and I was, I was a happy kid. Freshman year, September 23rd, 2011, I got diagnosed with an incurable disease called ulcerative colitis. And in a flash, everything that I loved to do and everything I knew about my life was taken away from me. I couldn't eat anything, so I was starving. After six months, I was down to 112 pounds. I'm five foot eight and 185. So if you can imagine me 70 pounds lighter, it wasn't a good look. And the way that I responded to this complete loss of control over my life was that I started punishing myself. I associated food with pain because I couldn't keep anything down, couldn't eat anything. And I thought, if I eat something, then I'm going to throw it up or it's going to cause internal bleeding because that's what I was experiencing. And I had no control over my life. People didn't want to be friends with me anymore. My family didn't know how to help me. And I fell into a very, very deep depression, and I had never really experienced depression before. Here was this very jovial, happy, bright-eyed college freshman who all of a sudden, three months later, is so depressed that he can't get out of bed. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to cope. So the way that I coped, was I became severely anorexic because the only thing that I could control was my food. There was a point where I was down to three, four hundred calories a day. For breakfast, I would eat five to six chunks of pineapple and I would even measure them in diameter to make sure that there wasn't too much sugar or too much carbohydrates. That's how controlling I was. That's how sick I was. This was my disease. At first, it was a physical disease. Then it turned into a mental disease. Five, six hours later, Around 5 p.m., I would eat 12 almonds. And for dessert, if I was lucky, I would eat a Granny Smith apple. May God strike me dead right now if I'm exaggerating. This was my life. This was the way that I handled it. Every single person around me was having the time of their lives. They were partying. They were hooking up with girls. They were drinking. Not that those things are you know, beacons of inspiration or things that we should all be doing. But that's what it was when I was a college freshman. And that's what I thought that people should be doing. And here I was so depressed and experiencing panic attacks and not eating for days at a time. Girls didn't want to talk to me. My friends didn't know what to do with me. My family was on my ass. What's wrong with you? Let us help you. Please, something's wrong. I mean, the pressure. I I caved. I crumbled. That's exactly what happened. I crumbled. And the reason I crumbled is that I had no experience building resilience. I had never really experienced a major life-altering event like that. I had no experience. And so this was my first run-in with, you're going to have to do something to build your resilience muscle. Now, 10 years later, by the grace of God, I'm happy, I'm healthy, I'm in tremendous physical shape, I eat whatever I want, I don't have any body dysmorphia, I have amazing relationships. It's taken me a long time to get to that place, but 
What I have spent the better part of the last decade doing is studying what makes the difference in people's lives. What makes the difference between the person who goes through a breakup and they crumble and the person who goes through a breakup and they're incredibly grateful for the experience and then they don't repeat mistakes? What makes the difference between somebody who goes through way more difficult things than I went through and yet they come out thriving and somebody who goes through something that's less traumatic than I went through and yet they're barely surviving? What makes the difference? And as I said earlier, the first thing that I learned is that the difficulty of the challenges in our lives is not measured by the challenge itself. It's measured by our ability to respond to that challenge. But the second thing that I've learned over the last 10 years is that resilient people are incredibly good at a few things. And there is a mountain of evidence supporting what some of these things are and what are the daily tools and practices that we can implement into our lives to build our resilience muscle and how do we overcome adversity. And there's a mountain of evidence supporting that if you do three or four or five of these things over the course of your life, you will be able to overcome pretty much anything that is thrown in your way. So I've spent years and years sorting through this mountain of evidence. There was one year where I read a hundred books on this subject. I read one book every three days just on the subject of how people overcome their adversity. And I want to distill my research and my personal experiences down into three or four things. Any questions so far? Everybody's with me? Okay, good. The first thing is that resilient people have faith. They have faith. What that means is that, first of all, their lives are guided by a power higher than themselves. For me, that's God. But I will tell you that eight, nine, ten years ago, I was a godless person with no connection to Judaism, with no spiritual understanding whatsoever. And it is no accident that at that time when I had no faith and when my life was not guided by anything higher than myself, I was the most depressed I've ever been. I was the most anxious I have ever been, and I was victimized. I felt like a victim. I felt like, why me? I was one of those, the classic case of the person who says, well, God can't exist because why should this happen to me? I'm such a you know, nice person. I'm such a giving person. So why does God do terrible things? And we'll talk about that in a little while. Uh, I don't have the answer, by the way, of why terrible things happen to great people, but I spent a lot of time thinking about that too. So we'll get to that. First thing that resilient people have is faith. And this was something that I had to cultivate. Over the last 10 years, I have had to actively cultivate my conscious contact with a higher power and believe that one exists. And that's really what faith is. Faith is believing that something exists in the absence of any concrete evidence. Do I have concrete evidence that there is a higher power in charge guiding my path? No, I don't. Maybe that's because I'm not spiritually sophisticated enough. This is where I'm at in my journey. But it's something that I choose to believe. Because when my life is only about me, and when your lives are only about you, your problems, your job, your relationship, when you are the center of your world, 
that is a recipe for falling into disaster, destruction, and depression. And believe me, I experienced it. When it's me, me, me all the time and you're the only thing that you focus on and you're at the center of your universe and there is nothing that has your back and there's nothing that is guiding your path, of course you're going to be depressed. The weight of the world is on your shoulders. And every time something happens, you have no way of creating order out of chaos. You have no consolation. You have no one to pray to. So I had to develop that faith as a means of mental and emotional fortitude, as a means of strength. I had to connect myself to something higher. And the most important reason is that faith and worry are two sides of the same coin. What is faith? Faith is the belief that good things will happen in the absence of concrete evidence. And what is worry? Worry is the belief that bad things will happen in the absence of concrete evidence. And if we don't have evidence that our lives are going to be well and we are going to be blessed and good things are going to, be, are going to happen, well, we also don't have evidence that bad things are going to happen. We also don't have evidence that all of these things that we fear and stay up at night thinking about are going to come true. You can say that our faith is blind, but our fear is even more blind because we're not clairvoyants, we're not mind readers. And so the motto that I live by now is choose faith over worry, choose faith over fear, because they're two sides of the same exact coin. It is true that life can be incredibly cruel and terrible things can happen to good people and there are senseless tragedies and things are random and they're hard to understand. And, and it is also true that the world is wonderful and abundant and beautiful and God is blessing us seven days a week. Both are true. Just as it is true that amazing things lie in our path and terrible challenges lie in our path. So when I say choose faith over worry, I'm not trying to deceive you and I'm not trying to deceive myself. I'm not trying to give you a recipe for optimism where I'm just blowing smoke in the air, right? Because both things are true. But the question is, which truth are you going to choose to put in your personal foreground? Which truth do you choose to believe? Do you choose to believe the fear, the worry, the anxiety, or you choose to believe the faith? The faith that something is guiding you and there is a higher power that is going to drop blessings in your lap. The choice is yours. The second thing that resilient people have is an uncanny ability to take personal responsibility over their lives. And this was perhaps the hardest lesson for me to absorb. Hi, gentlemen. Welcome. Come on in. Some seats up here. One of the hardest lessons for me to learn over the course of the past 10 years was this concept of personal responsibility. And I'll tell you a story. When I was 22, I was depressed. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was fighting with my girlfriend at the time. I was still battling anorexia. I was still living in and out of the hospital for weeks at a time due to my condition. And I was at the gym one night. The gym was sort of my, my safe space. And I had a mentor at the time, a guy named Mark. And that night, in a single sentence, Mark taught me the concept of personal responsibility. And at the time, it was probably the meanest thing that anybody ever, had ever said to me. But I thank God every day now for Mark. 
I was telling him all my problems and woe is me and I'm so depressed and I don't know what I want to do and my girlfriend this and oh my God, why did this happen to me and how am I ever going to get over this and blah, blah, blah. And what Mark said to me was, Kevin, no, I'm sorry you're going through this. No compassion, no any of that. He said to me, Kevin, everything in your life after the age of 18 is your fault. And I was offended. What do you mean it's my fault? I didn't ask for this disease. I didn't ask for my life to be blown to smithereens in the course of a couple of months. And the lesson that he was trying to impress upon me is you have to act as if it's your fault. Not that it's actually your fault, but you have to act as if it is your fault because that is the only way we take responsibility for our lives. To go to that extreme of ownership where we pretend that it's our fault. There's a famous author named Eckhart Tolle who said that one of the keys to avoiding suffering in life is to act as if everything that has happened in your life is something you asked for, is something that you wanted. When challenges come into our life, take responsibility over it as if it was an item that you ordered from a menu and then you didn't like it, right? But you ordered that item, so you're not gonna send it back just because you didn't like it. Now, this whole thing of act as if it's your fault, this is what my mentor Mark taught me. This isn't what I teach. What I teach is that there is a stark difference between fault, blame, shame, and accountability. Because terrible things happen to good people and it's not their fault. And they shouldn't have to think that it is their fault. But they are accountable once it has happened. It's not your fault that you got cheated on. It's not your fault that you're dealing with mental illness. It's not your fault that you have a disease. You didn't ask for those things. But who is going to clean up the mess for you? Think of your life as a grocery store and you are the owner of the grocery store. If a little six-year-old kid comes in and he throws everything off the shelf and then he runs out, you didn't ask for that to happen. You didn't ask for all that merchandise to be broken, but that kid's not coming back to clean it up. And neither is God and neither is your mom and neither is the store manager because it's your merchandise and you're the store owner. And so we really have to go to this level of personal responsibility, of taking responsibility over our lives in order to get our power back when life takes it away. Because that's exactly what happens when we face adversity. When we face challenges, it's the feeling of the rug being pulled out from under you. You have stability, you have friends, you have a job, you have love, you have family, and boom, in a flash, Car crash, someone dies, you get fired, you get cheated on, you get an illness, whatever it is, boom, in a flash, all that power, all that stability was taken away from you. But if you can look at that situation and you can say, maybe I didn't cause this, maybe I did, but now it's my responsibility to rebuild this, now you are in the driver's seat. Now you can take power back over that event that has occurred because you get to be the arbiter of your own fate. We're not always responsible for the events that happen, but we are absolutely 100% responsible for the way we respond to them and the way we react and what we do once those things have happened. 
And that's the lesson that resilient people really exemplify. The third thing that resilient people do is they have insane discipline. They have a level of willingness and commitment that is unparalleled. What is willingness, commitment, and discipline? Discipline is doing the thing you said you would do long after the mood you set it in has passed. Because we all get into moods. I'm going to run this marathon. I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. and go to work out. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to meet with Rabbi Jack every Thursday. I'm going to do all of these things. I want to elevate. I want to grow. And we watch these videos on YouTube and they inspire us. And we listen to these speakers and they inspire us. And we think, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to get married and have a kid. But then we lack the discipline to follow through. Resilient people have built their discipline muscle. Now, willpower and discipline really is a muscle. If you work it appropriately, it grows and it gets stronger and it gets bigger. If you overwork it to the point where it starts to atrophy and every single thing in your life is, I have to be structured and I have to be disciplined because I did that. I went to the opposite extreme. You know, I, I had this insane schedule of working out and eating right and meeting with all these people and that was also a control issue. If you exert discipline over your life, with too much control, then the muscle breaks down and it starts to tear. So resilient people know that balance of how much discipline to have and when to apply it. Now, why is this so important? And I really spent a good couple of years trying to understand why resilient people have this discipline muscle. Why are they so good at following through? The reason is that when life takes our power and you know what, you guys? That's what I did for a good three years. I didn't acknowledge the problem. I didn't seek help for the problem. I didn't talk about the problem. Part of the reason that I was so sick is that I was refusing to take my medications. Here I had the best doctors in the world. My mom spent countless hours researching and calling. And here I have the best doctors in the world trying to help me get through this colitis battle. And I'm refusing to take my medications. Because when life took my power away, I wanted to pull the cover over my head and hide and pretend that it wasn't happening. I was in absolute denial. And I also had no discipline. I didn't have the discipline to show up at my doctor's appointments. I didn't have the discipline to take the medication even though I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't have the ability to actually build my life through better habits every single day. And that's what resilient people do. They realize which habits are detrimental and they cut them out and which habits are helping them have a stronger, healthier, happier, more spiritually fulfilled life and they build those habits even when they don't feel like it. What clinical psychologists do with depression patients, people who are clinically severely depressed, and I know we have a couple of people in the mental health field in this audience, is these people cannot even get out of bed. And what psychiatrists and psychologists will do when they're intervening with them is they will go into their room and they will pick them up and they will physically make them walk around the block for five to ten minutes. This is true that people can get so depressed that they cannot even walk around the block. So they will have two psychologists holding them hand in hand and physically make them walk around for ten minutes just to get that motion in. Right? And then 12 minutes, and then 15 minutes, and then that person goes for a walk by themselves. 
and then they fall back into a depression. They don't want to walk again. They want to stay in their depression because we get addicted to our problems. Our problems become familiar, and human beings are suckers for familiarity. And, and it's like, it doesn't, seem, it doesn't seem like it makes any sense. Why would I be addicted to my problems? Well, first of all, our problems give us significance because they become part of our identity. We view ourselves as, I'm that sick kid. I'm that person who got cheated on. I'm that person who got fired. I'm that person who's had to go through all of these issues. I'm that person who always gets screwed over. And that gives us importance. It gives us an identity. It makes us feel significant, even though it's terrible. And then when that state of mind becomes familiar, when that's when we, what we wake up and we start thinking every day, it's familiar and human beings adapt to whatever is familiar and we become addicted to it. And when someone tries to take that away from us by saying, no, 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 forget that, stop doing that, try this, it's like you're taking away our identity. It's like you're taking away something that we know. I, well, all I know is this problem. All I know is this identity. This is how I felt for the last year. But resilient people, they identify which habits are going to help them push past that. And then even when they don't feel like doing it, they continue doing it and they continue pushing one step at a time, one foot in front of the other. And the last thing that resilient people are incredibly good at doing, and this one is really quite simple. If any of these things seem like they're over your head, I promise you that all of these are things you can start implementing right now. But this last one is the easiest one. Resilient people constantly do kind things for other people. Because the final stage of healing is taking what you went through and using it in order to help somebody else. Resilient people step out of their world of me, 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 and here are all of my problems, and oh my God, what am I going to do, it, do about it? And they step into other people's worlds, and how can I use what I've gone through to help you? Now, you don't have to get up on stages. You don't have to cure cancer. You don't have to write a book. You don't have to do any of that. But just calling someone and telling them that you love them, just performing an act of kindness, going out of your way to show someone else that you care about them and that you've been through something similar and you are there. Not only does that help them heal, but that builds your own resilience. Because now, instead of your problem giving you significance and becoming part of your identity, the fact that you are a kind, loving person who performs mitzvahs and who, does, who performs blessings for other people, that becomes your identity. And the next time you go through something difficult, try it. While you are going through that thing, take a step out of your own world and say, how can I, even though I'm going through this terrible thing, help someone else? And how can I contribute to someone else's life in a positive and fulfilling and meaningful way? And I guarantee you that it will give you the perspective when you look at your own issue, not that it's not that bad, but that you can absolutely handle it. Now, earlier I said that I don't have an answer to why. What's up? How are you, Gabe? Hey, bro. It's my friend Gabe in the back, everybody. <laughs> earlier, I, um, I said that 
I don't have an answer to why terrible things happen to good people. And Rabbi Jack actually really got me thinking about this because in one of our early sessions, he said to me, Kevin, the Torah has an answer for 99.9% of questions that have ever been asked in human history. Do you remember this? But the one question that the Torah cannot answer is, why does suffering exist? That is the one question that all of these rabbis and all of these philosophers and all of these experts who have been studying the Torah for years and years and years, I guess nobody has come up with the answer to why does suffering exist? And it's an existential question and it's a philosophical question. We'll probably be grappling with that question forever. And I don't know why suffering exists. And it is true that senseless tragedies happen all the time. It is true that there are random accidents. It's true that horrible things happen when they shouldn't. And it'll be a long, lifelong quest for me to figure out why that happens. But I do know two things. First of all, I know what to do when those horrible things happen. Because I've built my resilience muscle and my mission for you is to start to build yours. The second thing that I know is that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes there is a purpose to our pain. Sometimes there is a reason for our darkest and most challenging experiences. And what is that reason? Nine out of 10 times the reason is that that pain we are going through is essential for our own correction. There is something in us that needs to be healed. There is something that needs to be mended. There is some part of us that we have not worked through that we haven't addressed. We have an emotional blockage. We have a blockage to the outside world. We have a relationship issue. We have an ego issue, whatever it may be. And God is going to put us through the same challenge over and over again until we get the message. And we have two choices. We can either throw our hands up in the air and say, oh my God, why is me? Woe is me and why is this happening? And I don't deserve this and can't believe I got cheated on last year. How did I get cheated again? Have you ever dated the same person just with a different beard or in different clothing and you notice this pattern that's like, wow, this person really resembles my mother or my father. This is embarrassing, right? But the reason that we experience those patterns and we go through the same pain over and over again is that there is some lesson there. There is something there that is essential for our correction. And in our relationships, whatever unhealed trauma from our childhood we haven't addressed, it comes up in your relationship because that's the closest you can be to someone else. So they're either healing your wound or they're pouring salt in your wound, right? And in my case, why was I diagnosed at the age of 19 with this terrible disease that ruined my life for many years? Why? Well, for a long time, I thought there was no reason, and I thought that it was one of those senseless tragedies. Um, and again, I don't want to diminish that there are senseless tragedies that I don't have an explanation for. But I can tell you that now what we know in science and medicine is that with autoimmune diseases specifically, as well as a large percentage of cancers, those physical diseases, multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, several different cancers, ulcerative colitis, fibromyalgia, um, the list goes on and on and on. But with certain types of diseases, these are physical manifestations of emotional problems. 
So remember how earlier I said I was this happy-go-lucky kid who didn't really have any problems and had never experienced anything? Well, that's what I thought I was. But when I went back and analyzed my life, I realized that before the age of 18, when I was nine years old, my mom had to put me in therapy because I had anxiety that was so bad that I was getting migraines and throwing up in class. When I was a little kid, I didn't get the attention from my mom that I needed. And I had this nanny who I was absolutely attached to at the hip. And she left, she moved back to Mexico without telling me, so I felt abandoned. I used to get sick to my stomach in school because there was so much pressure from the school that I went to and I couldn't handle it, so I would hide in the nurse's office. I was bullied for being fat in middle school and high school. And I realized that I had all kinds of unhealed trauma. And what was I doing with that trauma? Because I saw myself as that happy-go-lucky kid who didn't have any problems, I stuffed it down. And I pushed it down and down and down. And it's no coincidence that this disease, which is blood and all kinds of issues physically coming up, this was God's way of telling me, you have issues that you have been pushing down and they need to come up and they need to be addressed. This was, and I'm so grateful. And it's not only spiritual, it's not only that God was sending me this message. We, we, we now know in Eastern and Western medicine, science, and literature that this is how many autoimmune diseases work. They're physical manifestations of decade-old emotional problems. So sometimes when we go through pain, there's a reason for it. And as I said, we can look at those experiences and see ourselves as a victim and ask why and agonize and avoid solutions, which is what I did for years and years. Or we can say, what is the lesson here? Is there something I can learn? Is there some way that I can grow? Is there some way that I can use this in order to contribute to someone else's life? And the more and more we do that, the more manageable our challenges become year after year because they're never going away, but we can get better and better at handling them. And I will tell you that the reason I'm standing here today, happy, healthy, strong, thank God, is yes, I started taking my medications. Yes, I got into therapy. Yes, I mended my friendships. Yes, I had better discipline, changed my lifestyle, adopted better habits, all of those things. But most of all, it wasn't physical and it wasn't mental. Most of all, it was the spirit. It was believing in myself and believing in my future. And I remember that even in my darkest days, the one thing that saved me while I was at USC was every day for five minutes, I would go outside and I would walk around the campus, which was beautiful, even when I was depressed as hell and I didn't want to. And I would look around and I would say, I'm going to get through this. I don't know how. I don't know when. And it came really close because I almost committed suicide, which is a different story for a different time. But even on that day, I went outside and I looked around and I said, I'm going to get through this. Our minds often become weak. Our willpower, our discipline, our internal dialogue often becomes weak. Our bodies become fragile. We break. We go through physical illness. 
people can actually die of heartbreak. They can be so upset, so traumatized that their body becomes so fragile that it, that it, it dies, it withers. But the human spirit, that fighter inside of us that says, I can get through this and I don't know how, but I'm going to ask for help and I'm going to believe that something is out there that wants me to succeed. That spirit is indomitable. The mind may become weak and the body may become fragile, but the human spirit is indomitable. Thank you guys. This is the best part of the night, the questions. Um, so that's my story, and you know, tonight we're talking about resiliency and strength and personal responsibility. Um, but I, I speak on four subjects. One of them is dating and relationships, which is the only thing anybody cares about, as Rabbi Jack always says. Um, the second one is self-esteem and self-confidence. The third one is figuring out what we want to do with our lives, career, passion, purpose, trajectory. Um, and the fourth one is anxiety, depression, resiliency, everything that we just talked about. So if you have any questions on any of those subjects uh, or anything that we just said, then please let them rip. And don't embarrass me by like nobody asking any questions. You know, I just put my heart out to you. So. <laughs> Okay. Oh, thank you, Chaz. I was about to be about to be very embarrassed over here. It's really scary. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more on. I don't, I don't know what, how your expertise range, but um, emotions and how they impact diseases. And you know, when you were describing bottling up a lot of the childhood traumas that you had recovered from, like like some of the studies that you might have read up on, and how that conclusion came. Sure. So the leading researcher on this is a guy named Dr. Gabor Mate, G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E. Um, and he read a book that he wrote a book that absolutely changed my life called When the Body Says No, The Stress Disease Connection. And his entire body of work has been studying this subject. And in Eastern medicine and Eastern philosophy, they've known this for centuries. They have known that if you break out in acne, ask yourself what happened three days before. You were stressed, right? If you get some kind of physical ailment all of a sudden out of nowhere, or you're absolutely exhausted, you're fatigued, you get some autoimmune disease, whatever, ask yourself what happened the days, the months, the years leading up to it. And 99 out of 100 times, there is some correlation between stress and physical ailments. Um, and so they've known this in the East for centuries, but this guy, Gabor Matei, as long, uh, along with some other Western doctors and researchers and scientists, have now brought this into the common parlance. Um, and as I said, you know, when you have some sort of physical ailment, ask yourself what happened a few days or a few weeks prior. And no normally, you will see that there is something that stressed you out or made you anxious or made you feel overwhelmed. And you know, the, the crazy thing is that when I first went to, the, so September 23rd is when I was diagnosed with this, with my disease. But for a couple of weeks before that, I was having internal bleeding and I was having all sorts of symptoms. And I went to a couple of doctors to try to figure out what the hell was going on. And not one of them asked me, what's your lifestyle? 
What's going on in your life? What's going on emotionally? Are you stressed? Are you depressed? Are you upset? Not one of them asked me that. Now this was 10 years ago. I think that hopefully we've you know, grown as a society to the place where um, doctors are now asking when people come in with physical ailments, tell me about your private life so that then they can make recommendations that are not only medication, right? I'm not a medication or meditation. I'm both. We need the Western medicine and we need the Eastern cures. Um, but, you know, it was very eye-opening for me that I never had one doctor ask me what was going on in my private life when all along that was the cause of this whole thing. So um, check out that book and check out that doctor and, and I hope uh, you, you'll go down a rabbit hole. It's pretty incredible. I'm sure. Thank you. Gabe. Hey, Kevin. Huge fan. <laughs> your, your energy is inspiring and uh, you're an incredible guy. Now, thank you, brother. And half that, but like, wow. Thank you. God bless um, you, Gabe. I'm wondering, um, you're so positive, and um, what's, what's something that you do every day? Maybe you have a routine or something as part of your new habits that have helped cure you that's uh, like a positive reinforcement you have or, or something specific that's part of your routine that helps boost you every day? Okay, great question. So there are the boring things that you already know. I meditate every day, twice a day. I exercise every day, sometimes six days a week, whatever. It depends what's going on. Um, you know, I read. I have a fulfilling job. I spend time with friends. You know, I do all of that stuff. And everyone's like, yeah, I know that, whatever. But are you doing it? You know, do you actually have a routine where you do, it's like those things are not rocket science, but actually performing those things every single day makes an enormous impact. I pray for 10 minutes every single day. That made a huge difference. Um, but I'll give you something that is maybe not as boring and commonplace. Although the boring things, you guys, really work. Um, I have something that, call, that, that I call a devotional. It's a devotion to myself that I read every morning. My devotional, which I recite to myself every day, is as follows. Today is a new day and a beautiful day. I thank God for his countless blessings. My mind is still, my heart is full, my intuition is clear. Today I have the chance to create an extraordinary life. I know my purpose and I fulfill my calling. I choose faith over fear and I do the work. I stick to my commitments. I value and love myself at the highest level. Thank you, God. Thank you for my golden spirit. Thank you for my challenges. I am ready. That's what I say to myself every single day. Sometimes I say it multiple times a day. Write a devotional for yourself. It can be three sentences. It can be 10 sentences like mine. Your devotional should be the code by which you want to live. So my code is I stick to my values, I stick to my commitments, thank you God, thank you for my challenges, thank you also for my golden spirit, right? And this is, today I have the chance to create an extraordinary life. Today is a new day and a beautiful day full of wonder and abundance, and I forget yesterday. That's the code by which I wanna live. And that gives me so much power. Because when I want to cheat on my code, or when I'm depressed and I don't feel like doing the things, I say that devotional for myself and it motivates me and it inspires me and it keeps me on track. And your devotional can be anything that you want it to be, but it is a commitment to yourself of how you want to live. Now you will slip up, 
But the problem is not that we slip up, Gabe. Because when you're driving on the freeway and you get distracted, you know, your car kind of veers into the other lane. The problem is that when we slip up, we don't have a concrete anchor to bring us back into the lane, right? You have a steering wheel and you don't want to get in an accident. So when you veer slightly, your mind wakes up and you just gently turn the wheel and now you're back in the lane, right? So when we slip up and when we fall out of line with our values and out of line with the way that we want to live, we need something to just gently knock us back in line. And my devotional is mine. As, as well as all of those other things that prevent my anxiety and keep me a, a happy, positive guy. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> what is that? Uh, uh, translate. It's like strength and blessing to you for thank your, you. Your amazing, thank you. you know, devotional and way of life. Thank you. God bless you, man. Robin. Wow, um, I do because I'm a coach. So all day long, I'm talking to people who are telling me about their traumas and their issues in life. And you know, there's something in the psychology world called countertransference, which is you know basically you get triggered and you you take on the issue that the other person is talking about, and it can bring up your own emotions and things like that. So um, I definitely get triggered, you know, sort of in the clinical sense or when I'm you know when I'm working with my clients and um, you know in this field you get trained to be able to separate yourself and your own experiences from the other person so that you're not taking on all of their problems otherwise I would be a crazy person because I listen to people problems all day long um, but I'm not sure if that answers your question because are you a therapist or no, uh, no um, I, I am going to start graduate school in clinical psychology oh uh-huh. Congrats. You should talk to Shirley in the leopard dress. She's um, a very successful therapist. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I was just wondering because, like, I, you know, I, I struggle with anxiety and sometimes, like, I just get, like, tr- like in little ways, like, get triggered. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, like, do you ever, like, just get triggered by, like, anxiety or something? And just, yes, like, yes, yes. Okay. You know, like, you, in, you know, just, so you, you have to have gone through a certain amount of, like, healing and self-awareness to, like, just respond yes. in, like, a healthy way, but I'm just... Scared. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, um... I'm a very anxious person and you know I was telling a few of my friends earlier I can get up in front of 20, 200 or 2,000 people I don't have an ounce of anxiety I'm actually happiest and most comfortable here but if there's a girl that I like who doesn't text me back I'm an anxious wreck you know like I get very anxious over very little things and this has been a theme throughout my entire life so one thing that I've accepted is that my anxiety may never go away and it will get triggered by different people and what they say at different points What we want to do is two things. First of all, when we become triggered or when that anxiety pops up, we want the turnaround time to decrease, right? So we want the anxiety, instead of lasting for 10 or 15 minutes or 10 hours, to last for five minutes. And you recognize, okay, something that somebody said made me anxious. This is why I'm anxious, but I have these tools, right? have a bunch of things, you know, a bunch of coping mechanisms. And so the turnaround time is less and you come down from the anxiety. The second thing that we want to do is we want to reduce the instances of being triggered. Okay. So the way that we, this is really a preventative thing. The way that we prevent anxiety is through those coping mechanisms and those tools, meditation, exercise, your devotional, your therapy, whatever. Um, There is also 
a habit that really helped me, which I shared with a client actually earlier today, which is when your internal dialogue is going nuts and your anxiety is being triggered, stop and give it a name, okay? So this bully in your head that's going crazy, let's call it Gertrude, okay? So Robin has Gertrude. Somebody said something off, something that pissed you off or triggered you, and Gertrude, who's the bully in your head, sees this opportunity to come in and wreak havoc on your life. And at that moment, everything okay? Yeah. Okay. Right. And at that moment, you want to say, uh, 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 not right now, Gertrude. I'm in the middle of studying for an exam. I'm on a date. I'm in the shower. I'm trying to like enjoy a nice relaxing evening. Okay. So name it and call it out. Gertrude is trying to make me anxious right now. And she's trying to say, you're so anxious because you're single. You're so anxious because you're never going to have kids. You're so anxious because you're ugly. You're too short. Well, if you're too short, then your whole life is going to be a mess. And just this like snowball. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, and that's exactly what happens, right? So if we can catch Gertrude, if we can catch the, the thought before it begins snowballing and stop it and call it out and then immediately replace it with a beautiful thought, which is, I'm very capable, here are all of my accomplishments, it's okay that I got triggered, I'm always gonna get triggered, I'm resilient, I have support, you know, I can call a friend. You, you replace it with something that is positive and aspirational and loving toward yourself, and you call it out, then you actually prevent the anxiety from snowballing and growing into something that ruins the rest of your day. The other thing I'll say quickly is that it is okay to have a bad experience or a bad hour or a bad afternoon, but nobody here has to have a bad day. Because when you woke up that morning, the only thing that wanted you to have a bad day was Gertrude. <laughs> God doesn't want you to have a bad day. The people who love you don't want you to have a bad day. Probably the person who triggered you, unless they're a total you know, jerk, um, Probably they don't even want to have a bad, they don't want you to have a bad day, right? So it's on you when you get triggered to say, it's okay for me to have a bad few hours, right? But the rest of my day can be filled with so much fulfillment and beauty and wonder and abundance and opportunity. And I can come down from this, right? And there is no power other than Gertrude, which is in your own head, that has decided that you have to have a bad day or you have to be triggered. Is that helpful? Yeah, thank you. Of course. That. Yeah. Yeah. Sarit. Um, thanks, Kevin, so much for sharing your story. It was really touching and inspirational. Thank you. Um, I want to ask, and I don't know if this is a long answer, but what was like... What's the meaning of life? I don't know. Not that one. Was there... Uh, like, what was the transition between, you know, being in college and feeling really depressed and then getting on the right uh, path. Like, was it a tipping point or was it more gradual? It was more gradual. It was definitely more gradual. Anybody who tells you that success comes overnight has never had it. And anybody who tells you, I was depressed and I was suicidal and I had this horrible thing and then boom, I woke up on a Tuesday and after it, that it never happens that way. You know, it's always gradual and there's a series, usually a series of experiences that sort of, catapult us into wanting to make those changes. So there were a few things uh, for me. Um, one of them was the day after I almost committed suicide. 
that was a big day for me where I did a lot of self-reflection. Um, and that's a different story for, for a different time. But that was one of my tipping points. Another one was that conversation with my mentor, Mark, where he taught me the concept of personal responsibility and told me that I couldn't blame anybody else and that I had to really step up. Um, and then, you know, there were therapists who helped me along the way. There were coaches who helped me along the way. My family helped me along the way. There was a series of, of events that sort of opened up my, my perception and made me believe that, um, that I had hope, made me believe that hope was, was still in the air. Um, but here's what it comes down to, Sarit, whether that process takes you six months or six years or whatever. First of all, you have to want more for your life. You have to want more for your life. Whatever it is that has you down, whatever the challenge is, if you don't want to get past it, you will stay there. And that's okay. I didn't want help. So many people tried to help me. I didn't want it. I wasn't ready. And a person is never ready until they're ready. But what I'm trying to impress upon you is that you have to get to the place where you actually want more, where you want things to be different. That is 70% of the challenge. Once you have decided that you have the willingness to make changes, once you have decided that you want more for your life, the 30% is getting the right information, getting the right guidance, and applying it. And then your life becomes exponentially better by the little habits you practice every single day. But when clients come into my office, they may be ambivalent, they may be skeptical, they may not be sure what sort of results they're going to get. But the greatest thing that they have overcome is the inability to desire more for their life. That's the greatest challenge that they've overcome. These are people who are coming and I respect them so much. They're saying, look, I don't know what to do. I don't know how things are gonna change, but I want them to change and I'm ready for them to change. And I will trust in you, coach, to guide me, right? And then they start implementing it and within three weeks, six weeks, a couple of months, three months, you know, they're, they're, they're really rolling, you know? So yes, it's gradual, but the largest part of that process is getting to the place where you're willing to make the changes. Does that make sense? Was your name Isaac? Yeah. Kevin. Yeah. Hey, bud. How can you get someone to, to like, become willing to make the change? Like, like how, how, does that, how, does, how do you do that? You can bring a horse to water, but you cannot force it to drink. If I knew the answer to that question, how do I get someone to want to make changes in their life, I would be a billionaire. <laughs> Do you, I mean, if you have an answer to, the, yeah, to that... Like, how can you help somebody help themselves? Like, how, how do you like, get them to, to like, convince them to go? You can't. You can't convince someone... This is what I'm saying. You can't convince someone to want more for their life. They have to want it themselves. Now, here's what you can do. You can tell them, hey, when you're ready to talk about this, I will be here. You can try, if it's someone you really care about, Send them my number, send them a therapist's number, you know, say this is a book that really helped me, right? But if you try over and over and over again and that person just shows you that they're unwilling to make any changes and that they are happy with their unhappiness, right? They're addicted to their problems, 
you can bring the horse to water, but you can't force it to drink, right? And so something that I've, a really difficult part about my job is that I often want to help people who don't want the help. And then to be honest with you, I take it personally. I, I take it like, did I fail? Right? Like, why does this person not want to work with me? Why does this person not want more for their life? They're so beautiful. They're so handsome. They have so much potential. They have so much intelligence. You know, am I doing something wrong? Am I not convincing enough? Am I not a good salesperson? Blah, blah, blah. But what I've realized is that none of that is true. You know, if that person is not at that place, you can offer help. But eventually, you have to fish or cut bait. Eventually, you have to realize there are other people out there who are actually ready and willing to accept the help. Now, here's what I will tell you, Isaac. I hear a lot of people say, oh, I don't have the money for a coach, or, oh, I don't need that, or, oh, maybe one day. You know, they make excuses, they think whatever. What I'll tell you is that there are a lot of people out there who want to help you. There are people who will do it for free. There are people who will do it at a discount, myself included. You know, there are people who will give you resources. There are people who will give you your time. But no one's really going to give you anything that you don't ask for. I'm only going to work as hard as you work. Because eventually I have to fish or cut bait. Eventually I got to take my skill set and what I love to do and help people who are actually going to respect that time and that energy and that resource and my investment in them. And if you're not investing in yourself, I'll invest in you, but only for a short period of time. You got to show up for yourself if you're going to expect anyone to show up for you. And that is true in coaching. It's true in our job. It's true in our relationships. It's true in our family, in our friendships. The level at which people respect you and invest in you will almost always be commensurate with the level at which you respect yourself and invest in yourself. So we go around wondering why we've been disrespected and why people haven't given us what we want and why people screw us over and why we don't, you know, why we're not getting the help that we need and et cetera, et cetera. Well, the reason is that we teach people how to treat us. We teach people how to treat us. And if we don't respect ourselves and if we don't invest in ourselves, then why should we expect someone else to respect us or invest in us? And you can say, yeah, it's just basic human decency. We're supposed to respect everyone. You know, we're supposed to be kind to everyone. It doesn't work that way. You know, people are inside their own heads 24-7 worrying about their own problems, you know. And they will help you. They want to help you, myself included, if you show up and if you take the first step. Should we do one more question and then we'll... Can I add something? Yes, please. I, I love what you said. And I think it definitely ties into a lot of the Jewish teaching. Oh, yeah. That's simply, I feel like Judaism stands for a lot of what you're saying in terms of showing up for yourself. God helps those who help you're themselves. Saying, you know, open a little bit of a, you know, like kind of like a, a gap, you know. Open the door a little bit, I'll open it for you, you know. Um, or recognize, you know, you also said that in, in different words, but we say it also in Jewish teaching. If, if someone doesn't recognize the problem, you can never help them and they can never get the solution. Right? Yeah. Because from their point of view, there is no problem. Right? Yeah. But if they recognize, at least they got to the recognition, you know what? I have a problem. I need to work on this. 
So we understand in Jewish teaching, it's halfway to the solution already. Because you're willing. You know, Absolutely. You, you have something there. So yeah, I love it. I just have to and, add that. And I wish I could... The Jewish thing. I love it. Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I, I haven't spent too much time talking about the Jewish teachings, but everything I'm saying I stole from Rabbi Jack and the Torah. None of this is original, <laughs> you know, unfortunately. It's your uh, own experience. It's my own experience, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not that smart, I promise. Um, but, you know, Rabbi Jack always tells me, I wish I could take credit for this line, God's never going to spoon feed you. You've told me that so many times. God is never going to spoon feed you. Success in our lives, blessings, relationships, money, happiness. These are not things that are dropped on our doorstep like a stork dropping off a baby. You know, you're just like going through your life. Yeah, every once in a while you find a hundred bucks on the floor. Okay, you know, good for you. You're going through your life. Yeah, every once in a while you get a little bit of luck. But we create more and more of our own luck the more we help ourselves. God helps those who help themselves, right? And we can't go through our lives wondering why things are not showing up for us if we don't have an active hand in creating those things. Um, let's, let's take one more question and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. And Just before you ask someone else ask a question, um, you mentioned suffering, and I just want to clarify. Um, it's true that we can never know the answer to specific yeah. sufferings that we're going through, but we can make sense Yes. Yes. So that's important to know. It's like I can give you 10 reasons why suffering happens, and, but I can never give you a specific reason why this person or this specific case or this suffering is happening to this person. And no one can know that. And that's the big price that you pay for having faith, is knowing that, yes, everything has a reason, but also now that it has a reason, why is this person suffering? You're going to be asked that question. If you have no faith, so you say, uh, why is there suffering? Well, uh, you know, there's suffering because I, actually it's random. The, mm. the, the, I'm not even allowed to ask that question. It's a, it's a theological question of why is there suffering? So, as soon as I speak, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're... And, don't like it or what? <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear, but what I, what I really wanted to get across is that we may not always know the specific reasons for the specific instance for the specific purpose, but it is possible to make sense of our suffering and create order out of chaos by looking at the situation and asking ourselves, is there a lesson here? Is there something we can take away? And how can we take this in our stride and learn and grow? Shirley. Sure. Or what is the process through which you refined that or um, were able to get that down? Like, if you want to do that, how do you go about creating one for yourself? Okay, so start, the way that I did it was I, start by, I started by writing 10 behaviors. And I don't know why I chose 10, I just needed to start somewhere, right? So one of those behaviors was live according to my values. And if you, in, in order to know that, first you have to write down your values, right? But I spent a lot of time cultivating my values and I know what they are. Another one that I wrote was stick to my commitments, do what I said I was going to do. Another thing that I wrote was be grateful and say thanks every day. And so I wrote down 10 of these and then I thought, how can I use my words to consolidate them? And my devotional, like me, is very verbose and long-winded and has a lot of words in it. I don't know how to be any other way. Um, 
but yours can, yours can be those 10 behaviors. Here's what I do every day. I pray. I say thanks. I don't listen to Gertrude in my head. I tell myself that I'm beautiful and I'm successful. You know, I repeat my affirmations, whatever you want it to be. But start with a code. A code is a set of guiding principles by which you live your life that you do not compromise. And slipping up is not the same as compromising because everybody makes mistakes, right? But compromising is the willingness to betray your code because of instant gratification or because you don't feel like it or because somebody peer pressured you or because you're anxious or you're confused or you're lost. If you're making a mistake, yeah, we're all human, right? But betraying your code is choosing when you know better to go back on your devotional, to go back on the way in which you want to live. So first, just write down 10 principles, 10 values, 10 behaviors, 10 things that you want to live by. It could be three, it could be five, I don't care, right? And then when you write a devotional, state it in the positive. Today, I do X, Y, Z. Today, this is how I choose to live my life, right? Don't write all of the things that you don't want, like I don't want negativity or I don't want to do this. State it in the positive and state it as if this is what you are already doing. Not, I want to do this in the future, or I will X, Y, Z, but this is what I do, and this is how I do it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Cool. You could do a whole workshop on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jasmine. What would you say the difference between the emotional and then like affirmations would be? Because it's similar, no? No, um, I guess, yeah, it's similar, but you know, affirmations are like, positive statements that you want to manifest. Um, I was never big into that, but I know that it's very, very helpful for people. A devotional is a code of behavior. It's a code of action. It's a code of conduct, right? So uh, it's really easy to say, um, I create abundance and wealth in my life and I am attracting the man or woman of my dreams. Right, that would be an affirmation. And again, if affirmations are helpful to you, absolutely Godspeed. But to me, that felt disingenuous if I wasn't actually taking steps toward creating wealth and abundance, right? Or if I'm sitting there saying, I'm attracting my soulmate. Well, do I know exactly what I, yeah, are my words and my, and my actions aligned? Do I know my values? Do I know exactly what I'm looking for in a partner? Am I dating one person at a time or am I dating 10 people? Am I sleeping with people on the first date or am I waiting till I'm in a committed relationship? Like, you know, things like that. You know, is my, and that's what integrity is and authenticity. Integrity and authenticity are the alignment of your affirmations, your word, your vision with your daily behavior. So the difference to me is that the devotional is a code of conduct. Um, And again, you're going to slip up sometimes and you have to forgive yourself for that. But at least you've got, this is the way that I want to behave. And here's what I'll tell you, Jasmine. For so many years, I worried about those things I wanted to manifest. I worried about money. Are you falling asleep, Liana? No. Yes, you are, but it's okay. We're almost... (laughs) This is my best friend. I love her. Um, Hold that up, Never seen the program. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, Leo. Um, for so many years, I worried about when am I going to get married? When am I going to make money? When am I going to have a career? What the hell am I doing with my life? You know, when will I have all this stuff? Blah, blah, blah. And what I learned is that 
if you fulfill your small obligations every day, you do not have to worry about the future. Now, we all need a vision. We need a destination that we want to arrive at, ideally, hopefully. Marriage, wealth, career, purpose, kids, whatever your vision is. We all need to have a very clear picture of what it is that we want. But once you have that picture, you don't have to worry about manifesting it. You don't have to worry about attracting it. You don't have to worry about affirmations. What you do have to worry about is, am I fulfilling my small obligations every day? Am I doing the things every day that are getting me one step closer to that vision, right? And the way that I really try to, to live this message is I ask myself two questions when I'm making big decisions. First question, is this going to get me closer to or farther away from my vision, right? If I have a vision of losing weight, is eating this pizza, yeah, I want the pizza, is it gonna get me closer to or farther away from that vision? Eating pizza is kind of a trivial, simplistic example, but you get the idea. Second question I ask myself, and this one really helped, it's, it sounds heavy, but it really works. If my six-year-old daughter were standing here, if my niece, Ella, my baby niece, who is the love of my life, if she was a little older because she's only two, and she were standing here, would I teach her that what I'm about to do is a good idea? Would I example, would I exemplify this behavior for Ella? That's how I live according to my values. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. But you know what? It doesn't pop up that often. It pops up less often than I think. If I want to eat this pizza, I'm not asking myself, oh, would I teach my niece that it's okay to eat pizza? <laughs> yeah, because she can have pizza, right? But I would teach her, hey, like, don't eat pizza all the time, right? But when I'm thinking about how I carry myself, when I think about my purpose, when I think about how I treat people, when I think about my daily behaviors, when I think about what type of relationship that I want to be in, anything that really matters in life, I stop and when I, before I make those decisions, I stop and I ask myself, is this something I would teach someone young who I love? And it helps me make intentional decisions, right? The problem is not that we make mistakes. We all make mistakes. The problem is that most of our decisions are unconscious. Most of our decisions are automatic. And if you can make your decisions just 20 or 30% more intentional every day, right? If you can make your decisions 20 or 30% more faithful, more guided by purpose, if you stop and ask yourself why, if you stop and ask yourself if it's gonna help you or hurt you, it's not actually pressure. It's incredibly li uh, liberating and uplifting. It doesn't weigh you down. It, it, it makes you feel powerful and it makes you feel large. Thank you. I think I have affirmation, devotional that I was calling affirmations and that's why I asked you to clarify. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Well, you're an amazing, <laughs> amazing young girl and you're, you're on a fantastic track and I'm really proud to know you. Yeah. Anyone else before we wrap up? Yes, Gabe. Oh, uh, thank you guys. Thank you so much. <laughs>